singing. You may be seated. I told the early service uh, this, so I figure I should tell you. Cody, can you pull up that second stanza, the last two slides? How many have ever sung a hymn? I just thought in the early service I was looking out. It was a smaller crowd, but not much smaller this morning because all the teens were here. And there were some faces like this. Golden casket. I'm (laughs) not sure what he's driving at here. And the point is, it's a great song. It's a great hymn. And it certainly teaches us a great truth. Well, we're glad you're here this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth. Valentine's Day is on Wednesday, so i got to preach on love, right? Well, it uh, just so happens that we are coming to the study of Ruth in our Walking with God series. And so we are going to look at her life and understand her story this Sunday and next Sunday as we look at her. Ruth chapter number 1 is where we are. We'll read the first five verses, pray. And we will jump right into the preaching today. The introductory comments will be very brief, uh, and then we'll jump right into the message because the meat of the message is what we came for, and it is the help for us this morning. The Bible says in verse number 1, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Mahalon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. Now let me pause for just a second. What we've got at least is a timeline set up for us. Elimelech leaves Bethlehem, Judah. He comes down out of the promised land, down into Moab, which is on the desert side towards Arabia. And as he comes there, out of the place of God's blessing, out of the place of God's promise, he dies. And for ten more years... The two boys and mama continue to live there. That's what we need to understand. Every part of this story, as brief as it is, has context for us. The Bible says in verse 5, And Mahalon and Chilion died also, both of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. All that was left was Naomi. Let's take a word of prayer and then we'll come to the word of God this morning. Father, we thank you that we can come into this story. We've not even met Ruth yet, except that she's married. And we see chaos, and we see trouble, we see problems. This family looks like a lot of Christian homes. I pray that you'll help us to see this woman, Ruth, today, within the context of her story, but also within the context of her character content of her character, I should say, is excellent. It literally is divine. It's one that we should emulate. Help us this morning, Lord, to see this woman, Ruth, and understand her story as it applies to our walk with you as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ruth is a story of love. If we were talking about Boaz, who we will talk about more, more this morning, but not in much detail, uh, and next week a little bit, we would say that the story is about redemption or redeemer. But the story of Ruth is a story of love. 
God's love, God's protective love, and then her responsive love back to God and to God's people. Ruth knew how to love, and in return, God honored her with true love towards the end of this four-chapter book from Boaz. Our introductory comments will be short because it's a short book. Love is the word that encompasses Ruth's life. In the MacArthur Bible Handbook, they finish their introductory thoughts about Ruth this way, and I think it's wonderful about this little book. They say, what Venus is to statues... Now, how many artsies are there in here? How many people know what that means? All right, some of you are like, I might know, but I'm not going to raise my hand because you might call me out. Anybody know the statue of Venus? And some of you say, why don't you put it up on the screen? Because you can't put the statue of Venus up on the screen. And so now some of you are going to go home and look up the statue of Venus, right? What Venus is to statues, and he says what the Mona Lisa is to paintings, the book of Ruth is to literature. It is a love story. Well before Hallmark ruined the love story, Ruth was written for us. It is recorded for us likely in 1100 B.C. to tell the Jews a story of love sandwiched in between the judges where there is success and failure and success and failure. And before the kings come on the scene in the book of 1 Samuel, there is a story of unconditional love and the love of God that is demonstrated to mankind, all found in this woman's life. So before we get to revealing the core principles of love, which is what we will look at in the final point this morning, we must understand first in our outlines the record of her life. How did she become who she became? What is her story? A lot of times you come into church and you will hear a pastor or a preacher stand up and tell you their story. You know, my story is very uninteresting. Ruth's story is very interesting and it comes within a context. It comes within a life lived. There are actually four characters in the story of Ruth. There's two guys that we're going to skip over, the weak boys of Elimelech and Naomi. Can I tell you something? Never name your kids these two names. Do you know what these Hebrew names mean? Mehalon literally means sicko or the one that's always sick. And Chilion means the whiny one. Do not name your kids sicko and whiny. It will not help you. They will not love you. They will not be kind to you. Chilion is who Ruth ends up marrying. He is pining and whining for the blessings of God that they all left behind. It does beg the question as we come to Naomi in just a few moments, if Naomi had a real strong hand in naming them because of the tragedy that Elimelech caused their family. Ruth's story gives us a divine picture of mankind's fall and our redemption in and through the three main characters that intersect her life. In this little book, we find a love for self, a love for others, and ultimately God's love for us. Ruth's name means beautiful friendship. Now that is a good name. A beautiful friend. She certainly lives up to her name. She is a Moabite who, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 3, was not permitted to become part of the Jewish nation. Yet here we find Elimelech and Chilion, who have come into this land, have placed themselves out of the will of God, and they marry Ruth. God's grace can overcome any of our failures and any of our shortcomings. That is the love of God. That's the beauty of it. 
But what this meant for Ruth is that in accepting the hand in marriage to Chilion, she was accepting his life, she was accepting his manners, she was accepting, most importantly, his God. In her marriage, she was leaving the God of Moab, which was Chemosh. How many know who Chemosh is? How many know what the God Chemosh required of the Moabites? They would literally take their firstborn child and sacrifice them in a burnt offering back to him alive. That is not a God you really want to serve. And so when she found a loving God from heaven in this wayward family in Elimelech and in Chilion, she said, that's what I want. I don't want a God that's going to kill me. I want a God that's going to love me. By the way, religion will kill you. If you follow a religion, it will always leave you dead, damned, and doomed. That's what religion does. It always tells you you're just not good enough. Or if you do the next thing, you'll always have something more. But in Christ, we have a free gift of salvation. We have an entry into relationship. This book of Ruth teaches us all of these things. The record of her life story revolves around these three key people. Each of them gives a partial picture of man's fall and God's redemption. In Elimelech, who we will start with this morning, we find Adam's waywardness. In Naomi, we find mankind's woefulness. And in Boaz, we find Christ's wonder or the wonderful nature of who Christ is. So to know Ruth's love and the principles that we are to draw from it, we must understand those who shaped her life story. And it begins with Elimelech and his neglect. That's who it begins with. His name literally means, God is my king. And yet Elimelech flees Bethlehem, Judah, when things got tough. Can I tell you a secret? Leaving God and God's word and God's purpose and God's presence, when things get a little difficult, does not demonstrate that God is your king. You are your king. I know better. I know how to solve it. I can fix it. And friends, you just cannot. Joshua, as a book closes around 1430 B.C. Historically, we know this is true. The book of Judges opens, and it begins to wind through times when Israel would eliminate problems in their land, have some success, and then fail. Abject failure, in fact, so much that they would turn to the gods of the land and they would become enslaved so that they would have to have another judge come along and free them so that they could have success again, and then they would follow the pattern. And it just went up, and it just went down, and it just went up, and it went down. Well, Elimelech, the Bible tells us in verse 1, makes his decision to depart from God's promised land in the time of the judges. We can calculate, because Ruth later becomes the great-grandmother of David, that it's probably going to be around 1200 to 1180 B.C., about 130 or 140 years before David is born to Jesse. David was born in 1040 B.C. That's 200 years then after Joshua's generation passed from the scene at the beginning of the book of Judges. It says in this passage that Israel is suffering a famine. A famine would only come upon the land of Israel because Israel had disobeyed God's word. What were they told in the Exodus? This is a land flowing with milk and honey. It has got provisions more than you can imagine. But the Bible says it's in a famine. So whatever time it is in the book of Judges, it's a difficult time. There's a famine in the land. That is desperate condition. 
Both Moses and Joshua had warned Israel that God would bring pestilence and famine if they chose not to obey him. And they had clearly chosen not to obey him. By the time we come to Elimelech, Naomi and Ruth, each of these individuals, there have been many judges who have ruled in Israel. Othniel was the first judge. Ehud, who I love, it's a great story in the book of Judges. He's a left-handed uh, judge, if you know him. By the way, he's the judge that killed the king of the Moabites, who would have been the king at some distant pass over these very people. He's a left-handed guy that had hit his scabbard in his right thigh. And when he snuck in through the guards, he takes the scabbard out, stabs Eglon, the fat, sumptuous leader of the Moabites, which shows to us our flesh in its gluttony. He stabs him in the stomach, and he's so heavy that when he pulls it out, he can't pull the knife back out. That's gross on many different levels, right? It's gross on Eglon's part, and it's gross on Ehud's part. But the Bible says he closes the door, sneaks out the back door, and it's later in the day that people realize the fat king is dead. Well, that's already happened. If you keep going through the book of Judges, you have Shamgar. Not much said about him. He killed 600 Philistines with the end of an ox goad, literally a spear. That guy was like a tough guy, okay? Deborah and Barak. Barak, kind of a weakling. Deborah, a godly lady, led Israel. Gideon comes along, who was hailed as a mighty man of valor, but was hiding behind the wine press when the angel of the Lord came. Then is Tola and then Jer. Chronologically... If this famine happens around 1200 B.C. to 1180 B.C., this is when Elimelech departs Bethlehem, Judah. The point I'm trying to make in teaching you that in passing is this. The culture of Israel was corrupt. Pause for a second and put yourself as Elimelech into that culture. God. Why would I serve God? I mean, what is he doing for us? Things aren't really going that great. I don't need to stay in the land. I can just go do whatever I want. By the way, in American culture, in American Christianity, that's how most Christians act. God, why do I care about God? What's he ever done for me? I mean, what's he given me? Is he really even real? I always laugh at those people that ask if God is even real. You have two choices. You either believe that God is real and created everything, which means you have somebody to answer to, or that nothing created everything and you're your own boss. Good luck with that. But this is the world in which Elimelech enters. By the time we come to him, by the time we understand him, Samson is likely a judge or has just completed being a judge in Israel. Oh, we all know the story of Samson. Eyes gouged out, poor and pauper, the man who once carried the city gates to the sea. He is down in the gristmill grinding because he had rejected God. And yes, he brings down the house, literally. <laughs> 3,000 Philistines die on that one day, but he is not an honorable judge, even though he did an honorable act in freeing the people. Right after him is Eli, who seems to be a good priest and a good judge, but not necessarily a good man because his two sons are dipping at the till. They're taking money out of the offering plate. What a wicked kind of person. By the way, we have churches today where pastors are just robbing the people day in and day out. Thank goodness we have deacons and staff and people here that take care of all of that, and I never see, touch, or feel the money. There's all of these scenarios, all of these people are in the life of Elimelech. This is shaping this man. And so while we beat Elimelech up for leaving, my God is my king, and you don't even trust him, you and I often find ourselves in a culture of America where we don't trust the king of kings either. 
The prevalent theme of culture in Elimelech's day is summed up in the very last verse of the book of Judges. By the way, it's not the only time it's mentioned. In chapter 17 and verse 5, it's mentioned there as well. It says this in 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There was no authority. Every man did that which was what? Right in his own eyes. Rather than trust in his God, who was his king, Elimelech trusted in his own intuition, in his own ideals, in his own ideology. I want to go there because I think it's better for my family. And there's a lot of people that will leave God, godly fellowship, and good people because they're just tired of this or that and they want to go find something else. Good luck. When you leave a place of God's blessing, it is a danger. Warren Wearsby, in his great commentary on the life of Ruth, says this about Elimelech. It would have been better to starve in the will of God than to eat the enemy's bread. Elimelech left God's blessing and it cost him his life and his sons. That is exactly what Adam did. He chose to eat of the fruit and it cost him his life and all of us, his sons and daughters. Elimelech's departure to trust the God of Moab meant he was offering his sons up as a sacrifice to a God that he didn't know. Well, Elimelech didn't come right out and say that, but disobedience and the choice of departing from God's promise means just that. Joshua had warned them. We looked at this just last week in our final study on the life of Joshua and his walk with God from chapter 23 and verse 11. He says, Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that ye love the Lord your God else. If you do anywise, go back. In other words, if you stop loving God and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them and go in unto them, and they to you, know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. They would lose their power because they'd lost his presence. They shall be snares and traps unto you, scourges in your sides and thorns in your eye. Yikes. Until you perish, that's exactly what happened to Elimelech, off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. Elimelech neglected the words of God. He left the will of God, which led him to no longer walk with God. Adam's story is identical in the garden. It is the condition of mankind. Adam chose to depart from what God's word was and he took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and ate. When he, took, or when he disobeyed God's word, he departed from God's will. And in departing from God's will, the Bible tells us that God could no longer come down in the cool of the morning, walk and talk with him. It's the same thing all the time. And yet we act like it's always new. Well, that, well that's not going to happen to me. <laughs> I'm different, Kyle. Really, what makes you so special? The reason so often these stories are repeated for us and the conditions of the story are repeated is because there's nothing new under the sun. It really is very basic. Disobey God and you're in trouble. It's just the way it is. Elimelech's choice to neglect God led letter B to Naomi's nightmare. Make no mistake, it was a nightmare. We pick up our reading in verse number 6. The Bible goes on and it says this. Then she arose with her daughter-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. By the way, isn't that a wonderful play on words? 
Bethlehem was the place of God's bread basket. It was God's bread basket provision is what its name actually means. And she hears down here in Moab, far from God, losing her husband, losing her sons, having nothing in this world. She says, you know, if we had just stayed there, everything would have been fine. Her nightmare is just beginning because she had a weak husband. Wherefore, she went forth out of the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Your, where your mother is and the father that, that he could be to you again. Go back home, in other words. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we'll return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi, say, Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there any yet any more sons in my womb that may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have, I have hope, if I should have an husband also for this very night or tonight, and should also bear his sons, would ye tarry for them till they are grown? Would ye stay or hold off for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes. Notice that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. She is desperate. Her situation is terrible. I never asked for this. I didn't plan for this, she might have said. And they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people, unto her gods. Please note that. What did Ruth love? She loved the God behind Naomi. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Now we'll skip over Ruth's verses in verses 16 and 17. I will teach on that in the final point this morning, I promise. In verse 18, we pick up again the Bible speaking. And I'm going to do a little bit of translating so you understand it. The Bible says in verse 18, when she, that is Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was steadfastly minded to go with her, Naomi... That Then she, Naomi, left speaking unto her, Ruth. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? Poor little Naomi. Poor, poor thing. Look what's happened to you. And her response is, Call me not Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi? Don't call me that anymore. Her name, by the way, means pleasant and delightful. At this point, she's anything but. Seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. By the way, that's the most true thing she says. God had afflicted her. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite is her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the barley harvest. Her given name, Naomi, means delightful and pleasant. However, after tragic events in her life, she chose the name Mara. Mara had very significant meaning to the Israelites. It was the first place they came to when they passed through the Red Sea. They had come to the wilderness of Sin, it says, and as they came to that place in Mount Sinai, or in the region of Sinai, the first place they came to, the water did what? It did not give them refreshment to drink. And they called the waters 
bitter. And she says here, hey, look, my life, there's nothing good about it. There's no pleasantness to me anymore. There's no delight in this world anymore. You all can just call me Miss Bitterness. I have no idea if there's a beauty pageant prize for Miss Bitterness. I think there is for like the winner and Miss Congeniality and all of the other things. I have yet to find Miss Bitterness on the docket. But that's who she claims to be. She literally claims that, what God, has, that, that God has done all this to her and that God has done wrong by her. That is a dangerous place to find yourself in when you blame God and tell him he's wrong. God allows difficulties into our lives for one of two reasons. First, to correct us when we have disobeyed. That is the actual case for both Elimelech and for Naomi. And if Naomi was dragged from Bethlehem, Judah, all the way down to Moab, kicking and screaming, it is still that she was married to this man and their decision was one. It may be why she named her boys Sicko and Whiny. It's possible. She might have been saying, "My guy, that guy's a jerk. By the way, ladies, you may be married to a jerk, and he may be in here this morning. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I hope not. But these stories teach us real-life truths. God sends difficulties to correct us. And this is the case for Naomi. She was not wrong when she said that God has afflicted me at the end of verse 21. The second reason God brings difficulties is to challenge our faith and to grow us closer to Him. This is actually the situation for Ruth. She was a Moabite. She didn't know God. And the death of her husband had created a crisis for her, which led her into a deeper trust for the God of Israel. Naomi's life was a nightmare because of the poor leadership of her husband and because of the anger that she allowed to build and resentment towards God within her. Her advice to Orpah and to Ruth may seem compassionate, but it is in fact the opposite. Naomi is the picture of the carnal Christian who is trusted in God but has not lived for God and now is doling out advice. Can I tell you something? The best place for Orpah and Ruth to be was back in Bethlehem worshiping the God of heaven. But what does she say? Hey, look, go back to your gods. Just go back to whatever you believe, because what I believe isn't worth it. Oh, friend, if you are in deep sorrow and despair, if you are in distress, please, for the love of God, do not give counsel and advice about your relationship to God. Get it corrected and then give the counsel. I can't tell you how often as a pastor I have people come into me and say, well, I heard from this person this, what should I do, pastor? And I think, oh, that person must be in deep throes of depression and anger towards God because that's the worst piece of advice you could ever get. It's not found in this book. Here's Naomi saying, hey, you know what, girls? Just go back to your gods. Hell's going to be great for you. That's what she's saying. You take the Bible and you tell me I'm wrong. She said, go back to your gods. Would you ever tell someone that? I hope your Christian life would ever fall to the point that that's what you believe. But we see the bitterness literally coming out of her. Elimelech neglected God's word, which killed his sons and created a nightmare for Naomi, with innocent Ruth watching it all. Thankfully, thankfully, chapter 2 begins, and into the story walks Boaz. I don't know anybody named Boaz in here. 
I had to ask this in the early session. I don't know. Maybe somebody named their kid Mahalan and Chilion. I don't know if we got any sickos or whinies in here. Uh, but Boaz is a great name. You can pick that. That's a good one, right? That's when I see the teenagers are having fun with my comments this morning. Beginning in chapter 2, we pick up the story, and in Boaz, in comes Boaz, I should say. The Bible says, and Naomi had a kinsman. Oh, we're going to learn a little bit about the kinsman redeemer, which is who Boaz turns out to be, the type of. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth and of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. Boy, what a picture of a longing soul seeking redemption, seeking salvation. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her harp was and her hap, excuse me, meaning her chance, was to light or to come upon a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servants that was set over the reapers, Who's that girl? I mean, that's the Kyle and Jessica version, our KJV version. But he says, Whose damsel was it? Woo! How many married men are in here? Raise your hand real high. Real high. It's Valentine's week. I told you, right? I planned these services. Keep them up, fellas. You're married. Hallelujah. All of you got to a point where you went, whoo, who's that damsel, right? I mean, we may not have said it like that. You put your hands down. Girls, I didn't make you raise your hand. Just the guys, right? Whoo, who is that guy? The girls might have said that, but the guys really say, who's that girl? And that's what Boaz is saying. He said, well, she caught my eye. The servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, uh, It's the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. Do you see what he's doing there? Twice he's saying to Boaz, Hey, dude, she's off limits. She's from Moab. She's from Moab. Boaz says, I don't care what her condition is. Oh, what a picture of Jesus. What a love of Christ that is given to us. What unconditional love. Okay. He keeps going. And she said, now the, the head of the reapers is speaking on her behalf here. I pray you let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves, which by the way was a custom in the Jewish law. They were supposed to leave the corners of the field for the stranger. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. In other words, she's not lazy either. She really wants this. She's not somebody that's just sitting in the house saying, well, it's not my turn yet. She's out there looking for every opportunity. What an industrious woman. She's the Proverbs 31 woman, by the way. We keep reading, Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field. Neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go after them. Have I not charged, you, have I not charged excuse me, the young men that they shall not touch thee? You're safe. With me, he's telling her. And when thou art athirst, go into the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. In other words, don't go drink from the brook. Go, don't go out. Come in and drink from that which we've prepared. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I'm a stranger? By the way, that's the right and proper response of the unbeliever to Jesus Christ when they're introduced to him. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, Isaiah said. Woe is me, we are sinners, we might say. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath, it hath fully been showed me 
All that thou hast done unto whom? Oh, bitter lady. I mean, he came from Bethlehem, and when she came back into Bethlehem, she cried before the town, I'm bitter! And Boaz says, well, that's not going to bother me, because who's this gal with you? <laughs> How thou hast left thy father, father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity. What is he saying? You've left all that you held before, all the beliefs that you have before. You've left all of that, and because of your love for Naomi and for Naomi's God and his beliefs, you've come here and art come unto a people which thou knowest not heretofore. The Lord reward or recompense thy work, and a full reward may be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to what? Trust. Boaz is a type of Christ because he offers her salvation. He offers her the love that God offers to all of us. For Boaz, I find he is a picture of nobility. I say nobility because to be noble means to have fine personal qualities of high moral value. That is Boaz. His name literally means to act confidently, quickly, and completely. The word most translators use is the word fleetness. I remember when I used to play soccer, they would say, Kyle, stay light on your feet. Fleet of foot, they would say. It's the idea. Step smartly, know where you're going, but do it quickly without hesitation. Though later, the name Boaz would be used for one of the two pillars that stood at the entry door into the temple on the Temple Mount. The one on the right side was called Boaz, and what it came to be known as is it gives its light in its strength. Boaz became known then as a confident and quick action. Boaz is the perfect type of Jesus Christ as our kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer simply means one who is of us who alone can redeem and restore us. The kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament was a male relative who, according to various laws of the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, in danger, or in some sort of need. Christ is our brother made under the flesh, Hebrews 2.11 says, who lived perfectly according to the law so that he might redeem us as his kinsmen. So Ruth's life story is recorded for us so that we might fully understand that she is an anomaly. There weren't a lot of Moabites that got saved. There weren't a lot of Moabites that came into the protection of Almighty God in Israel's day. But she is a picture of the coming church. She is a picture of the coming believer of the Gentile world. The record shows the condition of man and the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. The record of her life has a wonderful statement in the middle of it from Ruth that shows, number two, the revelation of her love. These are the three core principles. This is what we must take home today. Once we know her and what she said, there's even a higher value in the heart and mind. Ruth is a Moabitess, yet she demonstrates the core principles of godly divine love in relation to Naomi and later in relation to Boaz. We will look at her statement in chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 as she made it towards her mother-in-law. Here's what she says. After her mother-in-law said, go back, go back, go back, 
And she says, no, 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 I love you. I want to care for you. I want all the benefits and privileges that your God offers me. I believe in him and the goodness that he offers, not the death of my God, but the life of your God. That's what I love. That's what I want. And she teaches us wonderful principles. Here's what she says, beginning in verse 16. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. If I could get it off, I've started recently going to the gym and my fingers are fatter than they used to be, but I could get my ring off. On the inside of my ring, my wife, when we got married, had these verses inscribed. They're very special to me. They're very important to me. What my wife was saying in that time at our wedding was, you are the one that I want to die with. Thankfully, not at that moment. But you're the one for me. And I believe she's the one that God has given to me. In the story of Ruth, we find that she reveals to us what love, in all of its capacities, is to be built upon. To Naomi, her mother-in-law. This is not someone that she should be building her life around. Naomi likely was elderly at this point. And for no other reason that she should not choose Naomi to build her life around is because culturally the next son born should have been the one that she or Orpah should have married to raise up an heir to the dead son's name. But Naomi says to her in verse 11, I don't have any more in my womb. And even if I went right now and got married and had a child, would you wait for them? How hard would that be? And Ruth says it's not about the marriage. It's not about the men. It's about the love that two people can have and the love that we have for Almighty God. When Naomi says these things to Orpah and to Ruth, she's not necessarily being cruel. She's just being honest and certainly very short-sighted. May I suggest to you this morning that the love that Ruth demonstrates for God and the people of God, and in particular the person of Naomi, a child of God, is very lacking in our modern world. Loving kindness is a scarce thing. You got the left, and you got the right. You got the progressive and the conservative. You have the liberal and the libertarian. You have all of these divisions and stripes. You have the Kentucky fan, and I don't know when we're ever going to win again, right? We got all of these different groups. And we divide into strident lines and never demonstrate any of the core principles of God's love. So in teaching these three points over the last ten minutes this morning, I want you to consider the revelation of these principles in the life of Ruth as it applies first in your most intimate relationship in a husband-wife relationship on this earth, but also in a relationship as it relates to your relationship with God and His love for you. The first revelation coming from Ruth in this passage in verses 16 and 17 is this. She has a desire for communion. 
Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. I want to be with you, Naomi. I don't know why I want to, but I know I want to. I want a sense of belonging. And as I was thinking of these three principles that are manifest in verses 16 and 17, they're the original teachings that Adam gives that God approves of in his perfect state in Genesis chapter 2. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis 2 and in verse 18 about communion and the human need for belonging within or to one another. One another. God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. Of course, Naomi and Ruth are not getting married here. But she is expressing the core need of love and belonging amongst humanity. Now, how many of you would like to go live on 70,000 acres and build a house right in the middle and not have anybody close to you? Raise your hand real high. All right, I'm preaching at you this morning then. Gotcha. What we read in Genesis 2.18 is that God desired communion with another. God knows his creation. It's the only thing he said was not good in his original creation, that man should be alone. He has made us as human beings to find union and communion with others. I'm not even talking yet about marriage. It's just the fact of having somebody that we can relate to, that we can talk to, and that we can communicate with. The word communicate comes from the word communion. The capacity to do that To love is an emotion and an action. Adam could see two monkeys walking by. Adam could see two ducks, if you read Genesis chapter 2, walking by in verses 19 and 20. He could see two cows and two hippos. He could see two giraffes. And as he comes to himself, Adam begins to look around and says, I'm kind of out. Nobody can talk to me. At the end of verse number 20, God says again that it's not good that he should be alone. He needs to help me. Ruth's desire here, what she's expressing in this statement is, I want to be with you, Naomi. I want to go where you go. I want to be where you are. I want to stay where you stay. I want to be with you. May I suggest to you, if you don't have any communion or any fellowship with any other person, you've got a problem. There should be something innate born within us that loves other people. We start by loving God. We follow through by loving others as ourselves. Ruth chapter 3, we will find Ruth's desire for marital communion. We'll see that next week when we come to the idea of the consuming presence of love. We live in a world that's becoming too screen-oriented, too separated and segmented. We're not designed to communicate and commune over screens in the typed word. We are meant to commune personally with each other. For it is in that communion that we can fully express our care and kindness one to another. Husbands and wives this morning, how are you about spending just time together? Or are you just two ships passing in the night? Can I suggest to you there's no replacing spending time with each other. I mean, I text her that I love her. Look, there's only so long, fellas, she's going to look at that phone and go, well, that phone really loves me. It's communion. 
It's time with each other. Let me ask this question to parents. Because we're not just talking about spousal love, we're talking about human love here. How much time, parents, do you physically spend with your kids? I, I remember growing up, I was, my sister was the musician and I was the athlete. And I would play games and she would go to programs or concerts or play stuff. And I remember that when my father, when we moved from Kentucky to Washington, D.C., my father about one week out of every month or one week out of every two months had to fly out to the West Coast. And many times he would take the red-eye flight back on Thursday because Cassie or I had a ball game or some kind of program on Friday night or on Saturday, and he wanted to make sure he was home in time for that. What did that teach me? My father loved me. And what she's saying here is, I have to be with you to demonstrate love for you. I can't be gone. I can't be absent. And we'll make a real hard statement, and I want you to hear it. I don't care how much money you make. No amount of money you make buys time with your kids. Pastor, that's going to really affect the offerings of this church then. Let it. God's got more money than you'll ever make. He's only given you so much time to spend with your children. Do not make your work your priority. Love means being with those that you say you love. Entreat me not to leave, says Ruth. There's a desire for communion, but there is also, let her be, a devotion as a companion. Whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God, my God. Where thou diest, I will die. There will I be buried. When we moved into our house, John Tackett built our house, and the first meal we had was them coming over with, the, with Russell and, uh, oh man, Susan. I almost forgot for a second. I had to pull it real quick out of my memory banks. And John and Tabitha brought us two pictures with these verses written on it. And they hang in our closet where we change. Where you go, I will go. I told Jessica, don't hang it inside where the actual restroom stall is because I don't want it to be there. But I like that picture frame. Some of you will get that later. But the point is, is that I like that picture frame anywhere else in my house. It's a wonderful concept because it's drawn from this. How did Adam handle this as a principle of love? The devotion as a companion. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis 2 and verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept and he took, on, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Whoa, man, because she was taken out of a man. Man's first expression of love was to be a companion, not a conqueror. Ruth notes some pretty specific devotion to this loving relationship. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people are mine. Your faith, your God is mine. She says to her mother-in-law, I will take care of you. This is the heart of companionship. When it comes to marriage, true companionship is the key. I give pre-marriage counseling when people, when I marry them, I give them these three words. Roles, responsibilities, and realities. Has anybody in here gone through marriage counseling with me? I know Jamie and Min Young did many years ago, all right? Dylan and Melanie as well. In the early service, I had a couple others. Some of you have heard these in post-marriage counseling. You've come in and just to talk to me about home and relationship. 
In the role, it's defined in Genesis 2. It is a provider and a nurturer. The husband is to provide and the wife is to help meet all of the deficiencies that the man has. I'm not preaching on that today, but you all can have fun with that this week. I help meet all your deficiencies and you got a lot, buddy. That's the basic role. Within the responsibilities, I always go to Ephesians 5. And the husband is to sacrifice himself as Christ did for the church so that the wife can surrender herself or submit. And a lot of times, all you hear in Baptist churches is, Well, women, y'all better submit to your husbands this morning. That's not what you heard me say. If the man isn't sacrificing to you, if he's not giving sacrificially of himself to you, it's going to be real hard to surrender to him. That's the responsibility. The third is the reality. That's in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6 deals with the wife. There's a lot to them, and I usually make this joke when I'm doing premarriage counseling. It's because women understand lots of words. The man gets one, verse number 7. We men have a hard time with directions. And that is the reality is this. The directions given to the man is that we dwell according to knowledge with our wives because they are the weaker vessel. That word weaker doesn't mean more fragile. It means they are more valuable, like fine china in your house. And so we find the reality of how these all come together and the role and the responsibility is I have to value and give value to my wife. Honey, you're important to me. And not just with words, but with actions. Give her her value so that she can verify him. It says through a quiet and chaste conversation. I just saw Min Young punch Jamie and apparently there needs to be a refresher course. They're having a baby this week so I can say whatever I want. They won't remember. Ruth was not marrying Naomi here. I get that. But her marriage to Chilion and her expression of love for her family, she is demonstrating true love. I will be a companion. You cannot be a friend. You cannot become a family if there isn't an expression of companionship one to another. She devoted herself to Naomi, more importantly to Naomi's God. That is how our walk with God should be as well. A choice to devote ourselves wholly to being where God is. This is how marriage should be, and this is how your spiritual life should be. One last final point this morning, letter C, and that is we come to the definition of commitment. Ruth reveals to us love's core principles, and they are a desire for communion, devotion as a companion, and finally, the definition of commitment. She says in verse 17, The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death, part thee and me. In verse number 24 of Genesis 2, we find the last piece of this basic principle of love. Adam says there, and Jesus later in the Gospels confirms these words to be divine and from the Lord. Adam says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. Please note, he had no father, nor did he have a mother. But he's setting forward basic principles. The law of first mention in the Bible is given here. He shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. Do you know that word cleave in that verse is the very same word used in verse number 15 of what Ruth did. When Orpah left, Ruth, the Bible says, clave to her. It's the very same Hebrew word. Shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become or shall be one flesh. Adam's first principle of marriage that he spoke was that he would leave his father and mother, cleave, join inseparably to his wife. That is a vow. That is a commitment. That is an oath. And that's what husbands and wives do when they get married. Ruth expressed true love for her mother-in-law. Later she will express true love for Boaz as God prepares them in marriage for each other. 
We find throughout her life, this was not an easy thing, but Ruth never leaves Naomi. She is true to her word. She is faithful to her commitment. That is how true love is expressed. And may I submit to you, divorce may be a reality, but it should not be an option for you. It should not be something that you think on and dwell on and say, well, if it doesn't work, we've got this option. Oh, it should not be within your lexicon. It should not be in your thinking and processing. It is a devotion to companionship, and it is with a desire to be with in a commitment one to another. So make two applications, and I'm done, I promise. First application is the spiritual. In our relationship to God, we are to love Him because He first loved us. He has demonstrated His love for us in sending Christ as a gracious gift of salvation. This story becomes even more rich in its understanding next week as we find Ruth and Boaz's relationship formed and ultimately flourishing in chapters 3 and 4. For today, understand that in Adam, we are all dead. Just as in Elimelech, his sons died. Naomi's nightmare was that her husband had chosen to depart from God. Her duty was to make her own choices, and instead she chose bitterness. Ruth's love breathes divine breath into the story. Hallelujah. Where Naomi was angry, Ruth was hungry for meaning and purpose. If that's you this morning longing to meet Jesus Christ, today's the day of salvation. Come this morning. The second application is on the human level. In our human relationships, and particularly this week of Valentine's, our marriage relationships. Ruth's love is a testimony to each of us, not just the ladies in here. Her love manifested in her statement of love for Naomi is how we ought to love one another. The core principles of communion, companionship, and commitment in our Christian homes would create for us homes that cannot merely survive the chaos of our day, but thrive because the love of God is actually shed abroad in our hearts. So two questions and we're done. Husbands, do you love your wives as you love your own selves? That's what the Bible says. Are you dwelling with them according to knowledge so that your spiritual lives together may flourish? That is what for men communion, companionship, and commitment mean. Wives, are you in love with your husbands? Are you surrendered to, their, to God's leading in their life? Do you do so in a quiet and reserved way or in a cantankerous and loud way? That is the communion, companionship, and commitment that God desires for you. So as we close in prayer this morning, consider first your love for God, that it is sound. Then consider, secondly, your love for those that God has placed into your life. Father, help us as we close our thoughts on Ruth today. Help us to understand the purpose of this wonderful, wonderful lady. Despite her culture, despite her upbringing, Despite the context of her surrounding life, she loved you. It's evidenced by the fact that Boaz knew that her love for Naomi was because she loved you. What a testimony. 
If there's one here this morning that is longing to know you, may they understand this morning their kinsman redeemer is Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. Jesus Christ lived so that he might perfectly die to redeem us. He was our kinsman redeemer. If there's one that needs salvation, I pray that they would come today. Father, if there is one that needs to just pray silently at their seat about their human relationships, their human love, one with another, I pray that we would practice not just kindness, but loving kindness, care and concern for others. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, the piano will play shortly, just a stanza or two for us. I don't know that you need to respond by coming this morning, but I do know that you need to respond to the love of God. He has demonstrated love and compassion to us. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, let's stand to our feet before we close the invitation. Well, if I can have your attention, before we close this morning, Sabina Dutil comes to let us know she wants to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Sabina, have you put your faith and trust in Christ alone as your Savior? Yes. Hallelujah. And now you want to follow the Lord in believer's baptism? Yes. All right. Hallelujah. Now, I will say she's raised by great parents. Paul and April joined the church probably a month and a half ago. They came in and talked to us. And when I sat and talked with Sabina on that Saturday, she said, I'm not going to join yet with my parents because I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I believe. and What I believe is important, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Is that true? And so uh, she has been, been going through discipleship with Sarah, and they've been talking, and she's recently confirmed for sure that she's trusted Jesus Christ alone as her Savior. And she said, all right, let's do it. She came and she said, Mom will be back in February. Let's get baptized. Hallelujah. We're excited for you, Sabina. A wonderful young lady in the youth group, certainly full of energy and a joy to be around. We are excited. All those in favor of receiving her membership as well after her baptism, let it be known by a hearty amen. Amen. We're excited. You can go get ready if you will, and I'll come back in just a minute. You may be seated. Zach, come ahead if you want to lead us in a song. That would be great.